the damnation of Faust. And its first performance uh, in Paris at the Opera Comique on December the 6th, 1846, it was a complete disaster. Berlioz himself later wrote, Faust was twice performed to a half-empty room. The concert-going Parisian public, supposed to be fond of music, stayed quietly at home, caring as little about my new work as if I had been an obscure student in the conservatoire. Nothing in all my artistic career ever wounded me so deeply as this unexpected indifference. Well, time would almost heal the wound, but Berlioz had learnt an important lesson. As he also wrote, from that time forth, I never risked so much as a 20 franc piece on the popularity of my music with the Parisian public. Berlioz was indeed, as many of us know, a prophet except with honour in his own country. But to be fair to Parisian audiences in 1846, and I have to say it's very hard to be fair to Parisian audiences in 1846, <laughs> and still sometimes where Berlioz is concerned, um, the damnation of Faust is a puzzling piece. The composer himself called it a dramatic legend, and it's as much an oratorio as a music drama or an opera. And there's been over a century of speculation as to whether it should be staged or simply performed in the concert hall as Berlioz seems to have intended. That's anyway where we're going to start our conversation this evening, and we have a bouquet of extremely distinguished guests. We're going to hear a little of the music from the opera, performed by Murray Hipkin and Adrian Pauter. Uh, Leah Hausman, who has worked as associate director on Terry Gilliam's production of The Damnation of Fast, is here to explain what a movement director can bring to a particular production. And we're also joined by Aoife Monks, who replaces Lisa Jardine, who's indisposed. And Aoife is a senior lecturer in theatre studies at Birkbeck College in the University of London. This, I should tell you, is Aoife's second date with Faust, or maybe it should be her second date with Mephistopheles. She joined the very first conversation of this season about Gounod's Faust last autumn. Also with us is the greatest of British Berlioz scholars and the composer's biographer, David Cairns, who, working with Sir Colin Davis, has made London everything where Berlioz is concerned that Paris ought to be, a city that knows and values the music of this greatest of French romantic composers. David and Aoife, I'd like to start with a very simple question for you. The Damnation of Faust, as I've suggested, David, is a strange work. Is it an oratorio, or is it an oratorio that really wants to be an opera? Well, he called it an, an opera without decor or, or costumes, uh, an opera of the mind's eye, and I think that was how he conceived it right from the beginning, because it wasn't simply that his own operatic ambitions had been thwarted when Benvenuto Cellini crashed at the Paris Opera. I think from the moment when he discovered Beethoven's symphonies and realized that the symphony, that a concert work could be intensely dramatic, in fact, he actually said that music has wings too wide to be spread within the confines of a theatre. He was always going to write a series of dramatic concert works, and the Damnation of Faust, although nearer to opera than the previous one, Romeo, his Romeo and Juliet Symphony, was definitely intended as a concert work. But a year later, Berlioz got a job in London conducting a thing called the Grand English Opera, and it was agreed with the impresario that he would adapt the damnation for the stage. And the only reason why he didn't was that the company collapsed, went bankrupt. But he would have done so. So I think that it's, it's an open question. And maybe, Aoife, it has that pleasant hybridity, that it is neither one thing nor the other, but both simultaneously, that we particularly like at this moment. Yes, I think that might be true. What I'm wondering is if this 
problem might be a symptom of something greater at this moment, a symptom of romanticism, where we could very much locate this work, where artists have an ideal vision and they want to commune with that ideal vision. So if one is a poet or a, a painter, it's possible to produce this idealised vision which then an individual can commune with in some way, meditate upon. The problem is, if you're making work for the theatre, you have these terribly vulgar things called performers getting in the way, who bring with them their own desires to reach for applause, or who may be coming from an older system of performance that doesn't match with the ideals of that artist. So what's fascinating is that this piece is symptomatic of a much broader trend, uh, where we have quite a lot of plays that are written to be unstageable, they're closet dramas, they're written not to ever be Performed. We have an essay by uh, von Kleist, who argues that actors should be replaced by uber marionettes, by giant puppets, who will do a much better job than these sort of vulgar figures ever could. And we also, of course, have the solution in some ways produced by Wagner, where we have the total artwork controlled by a central figure, the director, who's actually an invention of this moment, um, who sort of solves the problem because it's the director's job to render the performer, the scenography, the music, uh, coherent in some way. The director doesn't exist in the 1840s. It's, it's a figure that's being invented at this moment as a solution to an idealist desire to, to get away with the vulgar apparatus of the stage. Yes, I think that, that Berlioz's Damnation of Faust looks forward to, to, to film. Mm. It seems to me that film would be the absolutely perfect medium for it. But, you, you know, it's, it's like the, the chorus in Henry V when he says, when we speak of horses, imagine that you see them <laughs> yes. printing their proud hooves of the receiving earth. That's, I think, the spirit in which Berlioz wrote it. And it, a lot of the transitions are sort of filmic, don't you think? Well, I think we can promise you without giving anything away, film tonight, David, when, when in the house itself. Um, I noticed that uh, Leah Hausman was smiling at the thought of the vulgar performers getting in the way. You're actually the associate director on this production, but you, you're, we know you better as a movement director. What does a movement director actually do working with an opera company? Well, um it's difficult to answer that question because it very much depends on the director that you're working with. It's a many-faceted job, and I think actually this title, Movement Director, possibly only truly exists here in England. When you go to abroad, it's very difficult for them to translate what that is because, indeed, everything moves, and so the set moves, the people move, the lights move, everything moves. And, in fact, I have an influence on all of those things. So, uh, but your primary uh, influence, of course, is on the singers and on the chorus. And I suppose in the broadest terms, if you imagine the set designer is using paints and, and wood and nails to put together a set and to paint it and to create a certain architecture in the space, I am there to use the bodies of the chorus and of the individual singers to paint the space with their energy, with their attitude, with a certain vision that the director may or may not have come forward with. <laughs> and, and what stage do you get involved in a production? Well, usually very early on, certainly with this one very early on, a director is asked by a company to do a piece and they begin to assemble their team. And with that, generally, in opera, 
they'll be thinking about what designer to use, and then probably quite quickly after that, what movement or choreographer. Obviously, choreography comes under this as well, so it's occasionally you do have to do um, a fandango if you're doing Marriage of Figaro, or not, or maybe they've decided to do something else. But, um, yeah, so that comes on very, very early in the, in the planning stages. And, and do you arrive uh, uh, with ideas about what you think you want to do, or do they emerge from perhaps not until you actually start to work with the director and the rehearsals begin? Well, the first thing you need to do is meet with the director and see and try to glean what's coming out of their brain, and also, as quickly as possible, see what space and what atmosphere you're going to be working in with the set designer and the costume designer and even more so in a sense with the costume designer you have there's a lot of interaction between between um between the two of us certainly the set as well it will have a huge impact on how how you're going to work in the space and what you're able or not able to do and the sooner i get in there i'm better armed to work with the singers and the chorus when i get them in the rehearsal room but presumably one of the pleasures and one of the, the risks and excitements is actually what happens when you start rehearsing, the unexpected. In other Absolutely. words, they bring you things and you say, yes. wow. Yes. You can plan to your heart's content, but when you get in that rehearsal room, you have to throw all your plans away. Uh, you start with something and you have to, especially in opera, because the time is so limited. But you have to be ready to let go and also to inspire people to invent themselves, because in the end... It's those crude performers <laughs> who have to own the material, and it can't just be because I've told them to do something or to do it in a certain way. I think with singers, as opposed to actors, you can demonstrate a lot more, and they appreciate that. Nevertheless, they can never do what you have really asked them to do. They have to find a way of doing it themselves. And do you think that singers are more receptive to movement and to thinking about moving than perhaps they would have been 25, 30, 40 years ago? Yes, indeed. And I will take some credit for that because when I first came into opera, I was just saying to Aoife, I, I had never been to an opera before I actually worked on one. And I was working in the theatre and my background was in movement and, and dance. And when I started to work with singers, I went, oh my God, they need help. <laughs> and I made it my mission, really, to get it because by the time you're in the rehearsal room, it's too late. You, you have to get them earlier in the training period so I went and I was I've worked in all the schools I think that there are in London doing bits and pieces with them and I'm um, I, I think I was early on it was just beginning anyway about 20 years ago where they were starting to think hmm it's not just about singing it's also about making a piece of theater they'll never have the training the background that an actor will have because there simply isn't the time but some of us with, with older memories will remember Ken Russell's celebrated film about Richard Strauss and the dance of the Seven Veils from the opera Salome, in which a very large soprano sang Salome. And at the moment when Salome does her famous dance to seduce, um, with the Seven Veils to seduce her, uh, the large lady disappeared into a wardrobe and this delicious sweet lady jumped out and did the dance. So in a sense, something has also changed about singers too, hasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, they've come, you know, even Terry said part of the problem is, you know, we've all seen too many films and you look at the singer and it's very hard to, to uh, suspend your belief and understand why Mimi is the size that she's in is and dying of 
TB. It's hard to, it's hard <laughs> to swallow that one. There are some brilliant <laughs> actresses out there, singing actresses, who, you know, might stretch to it, but it's difficult because television, media, we're all become very advanced and we require things to match now in a way that we didn't before. We, we shouldn't give, I think, anything away about this production because, in a sense, it's, it's power uh, for those of us who've been lucky enough to see it is the surprises that it lays in store for us. But what were the challenges, from your point of view, that Terry Gilliam set for you? Well, um, he's a really masterful storyteller and I guess he's sort of renowned for his obsessive attention to detail, which is absolutely fantastic in a director, but very difficult sometimes to be able to really get the detail that he wants in. It is a fairly, you know, it's a, it's a cruder art form than film. You can tell so much with a one second shot. You understand immediately that somebody is in love or that there's a problem. In theater, it takes a much longer time to set that up and to focus the audience's eye. And indeed, you can never really guarantee where people are looking unless you just have a very tight spotlight on something. And even then, someone is watching something else. So I had to help him to edit, and he's brilliant at just letting things go that aren't going to work. But there were a lot of little stories in there that had to fall by the side. Now, you whet the appetite. Leo Hausman, thank you very much for being with us here this evening. Thank you very much indeed. After, after the words, words and music. We're going to hear a little from the opera. Murray Hipkin, who's a member of the English National Opera music staff, is going to play the piano for the baritone Adrian Pater, who covers the role of Mephistopheles, and it's Mephistopheles' serenade, I think, that we're going to hear now. Let's sing a morality song to entertain the lady and to damn her without a doubt. Pretty little maid, let me give you this warning. Let me give you a few words of warning. What a price you've paid waiting there since the morning. Waiting there, waiting there, waiting there. Let me say, you should be afraid in this house to surrender. Maiden, you may enter. Maiden, you may enter. But not emerge a maid. But not emerge a maid. Pretty little maid, let me give you this warning. Let me give you a few words of warning. What a price you've paid waiting there since the morning. Waiting there, waiting there, waiting there. If he takes your arm, you're polite, so you step out with him. You're polite, you're polite, you go with him. He may do you harm, let me tell you so. Good night, so good night, so good night, so good night, so good night. He may try anything, woo you with friendly glances. Don't give in to his advances. Don't give in to his advances. Don't give in without a wedding ring. Without a wedding ring. If he takes your arm, you're polite. So you'll step out with him. You're polite, you're polite. You go with him. He may do you harm, let me tell you so. Good night, so good night, so good night, so good night, so good night. So good night. 
Thank you very much indeed, Murray Hipkin and Adrian Potter. Adrian, who exactly is Mephistopheles in this production? Again, not giving too much away. Yes, it's very difficult without, without giving too much away, but he, he's, uh, in this production, he's a guide, he's a manipulator, he's, uh, he's a storyteller, ultimately. He's, he's the one who, who sets up the idea, and uh, he's got a goal in store. He wants, he wants Faust's soul. So. But, you, but you've just made us laugh, and I wonder, in a sense, he's gleefully evil too, isn't he? I mean, there's a sort of a, a rich, rather dark sense of humour about it. Well, him. I think we all have a, um, a wicked side to our natures, and I think he's the embodiment of that. So, uh, yes, he, he does, his arias tend to be like this piece, um, two minutes, quite short, quite, quite nippy. Uh, they, they have a, temp, a tempo to them um, that really reflects his character, his naughtiness. How demanding is it for you as a singer, the role? Um, as a vulgar singer? <laughs> I've been described as vu uh, vulgar and needing help this evening. Um, but uh, how demanding is it? It's, it's a pretty big force that you have to deal with on, on the stage. Um, as an understudy, there, are, there is just the three of us and a piano inside a rehearsal room. On stage, there are literally hundreds of people, um, an orchestra of 100 players. It's truly epic so in terms of stamina it is pretty demanding and as you say without giving too much away tonight the the role is is slightly extended he he does more than just sing tonight as you as you will see soon and, and vocally demanding vocally it's actually quite comfortable i think for any baritone i think it's easily within most baritones range which allows you greater freedom on stage to put in your own personal touches so you've got time to make the audience find you watch you I would hope they would. <laughs> I'm sure we would. Edwin Powell, thank you very much indeed. Um, when Berlioz first read Goethe's Faust, on which he would base the damnation of Faust, he was overwhelmed by the book. Um, though whether it was Faust or Marguerite who overwhelmed him is often hard to tell, because, of course, he was romantic with a large and a small R, and smitten by women as if by thunder and lightning. Think no further than Harriet Smithson, the Shakespearean actress he saw as Ophelia, and then Juliet, who he pursued through his Symphonie Fantastique and into life until she became his wife. As Berlioz noted in his memoirs, my first encounter with Goethe's Faust, which I read in Gerard de Neval's translation, made a deep and strange impression on me. The marvellous book fascinated me from the first. I could not put it down. I read it incessantly at meals, at the theatre, in the street, wherever I happened to be. And the drama so excited young Berlioz that he composed a suite of pieces with the title Eight Scenes from Faust, which became in 1829 his opus number one. And Karl Marx, no less, who came across a copy of the score, wrote to Berlioz expressing his pleasure. Now there's an encounter to imagine. Karl Marx and Berlioz meeting and talking. Swapping books, I wonder. Um, but dissatisfied as he was by what he'd written, Berlioz tried to retrieve as many copies of his Opus One as he could. And it wasn't until 1845, nearly 20 years after he'd first devoured de Nerval's translation of Faust, that he would return to the work. Out of the original eight pieces, he fashioned a continuous drama, which Hugh MacDonald, who's prepared tonight's English uh, singing version, says, I quote, more closely represents the character and fate of Faust from his unattainable longings for youth, love, and the fount of knowledge. This work was written mostly while Berlioz was on a long European tour, and he composed wherever he was, Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Bohemia, and often writing on his knee in the carriage in which he travelled through Europe. 
a wandering composer perhaps, writing about a wandering and wondering scholar. Well, we have our guest, David Cairns, and Aoife Monks. And David, can I ask you, really, I suppose, that the most obvious question to emerge from the Goethe-Berlioz connection is, what do you think it was that Berlioz found in Goethe that caught his imagination? I think I should put it in the, the context of the period, because if it was the same for Berlioz as for the other romantics, I think that they found in Goethe's Faust, and actually in parenthesis, I must say it was part one of Faust, because the part two where Faust is redeemed and does all these good works and so on hadn't been published. So for Berlioz and his fellow romantics, I think that, that they were pretty sure that in, Marguer in the words of Madame de Stael, who'd written a famous book about Germany, which, which everybody in Paris and France read at the time, she said the author's intention is probably that Marguerite will die, but her soul will be saved. Uh, Faust will live, but his soul will be damned. The redeemed Faust, the good work Faust, who so preoccupied later composers like Liszt and Wagner, didn't come into it at all. And I, I think that what you see, first of all, it was Shakespeare in 1827, then it was Beethoven symphonies at the Conservatoire, and then it was Goethe's Faust, and all these things, you know, taught these young people who'd been, who'd been suffering under the restrictions of the establishment. You know, the French classicism was, had an incredibly tight grip and you, you weren't allowed to do this, you weren't allowed to mix comedy and tragedy, you weren't allowed to mix verse and prose. And then here was this, first of all Shakespeare and then Beethoven who, t who told, and then Goethe who said, you know, you don't need to bother with the rules, you know, do, ha make your own rules, do what your imagination tells you. And I think that in particular what he found in Faust was this idea of the sort of unfettered quest for experience. There was nothing to stop you taking risks. And at the same time, I think what Faust part one showed them was that within each soul there lurks these terrible demons of disgust and alienation. And um, that that's what the damnation of Faust is about, I think. It's Mephistopheles. It's interesting that when, that if this opera, which Berlioz planned to make in London, had come off, it would have been called Mephistopheles, because it's Mephistopheles who runs the whole work, and because he's inside Faust, so that's why Faust can't get rid of him. Everything he tries, you know, nature, companionship, learning, love, it all turns to dust because within him he's got this spirit of denial. And I think that was, uh, obviously that wasn't the case in when he wrote the eight scenes from Faust because in fact Faust doesn't even appear in any of those eight scenes. But when he, under the influence of Germany and going to Goethe's Weimar in 1843 when he, he got this idea that he must write this work, I think by that time, there was, a, there was a, a journalist in Prague where Berlioz was who said he himself is a Faust, you see. He's, he's experienced all these, that, that everything turns to dust. If it, David is suggesting, I think, also in what he says, that this work is deeply rooted not only in Romanticism, European Romanticism, that revolt against the autocracies of taste, style, and indeed politics, but maybe particularly rooted in German Romanticism, and those kind of dark forces, as we eventually discover, but that, that kind of the world of the mysterious forest and so on. 
Yes, I think, that's, I think that's right. I mean, it's an interesting question as to whether Faust is the romantic hero and Mephistopheles is the romantic artist. Faust is the wanderer. He's searching for knowledge. Science and reason are not adequate. They don't explain the world enough. So he looks for ways to understand the world beyond reason. And yet we also have this figure who is a singular genius at producing beautiful visions Mephistopheles, who, who very much, in a sense, stands in for the romantic artist in some ways, this individual genius figure. So yes, I mean, I think, I think what we can see is a new search for, for a different sort of origins, origins not found in Christian belief, necessarily, or in classical lineage, but rather in folklore, in a kind of popular ancestry, and also in the land. So these figures looking out into beautiful empty scenery, this is a very new idea that's sort of circulating in the early to mid-19th century. And one thinks of the painter Caspar David Friedrich then. Absolutely. Uh, of, of, of these figures, uh, the celebrated picture uh, of the man with the red hair looking out into an empty landscape. We only see his back. So it's that kind of sense of alone, Einsamkeit in nature. Yeah, I mean, I think we might even suggest, this would be a controversial thing to say, that nature was invented in this moment. The idea, the idea of a land that is empty, it doesn't have workers in it, nor does it have sort of beautiful shepherdesses from classical mythology, nor is it a beautifully ordered garden, but rather this empty wild landscape that a single figure communes with. Um, the landscape is an allegory in many ways for one's spiritual life, one's spiritual journey, but it's also a form of connection. It's a way of asserting a kind of identity that is not about these old systems of connection, but rather a new one, a connection to land, to soil, uh, to folklore, to a kind of authentic ancestry. And this is very much in circulation in the early to mid-19th century. Yes, and the, actually the climax of one of the great pieces in The Damnation is the nature immense, where, where Faust is alone with nature. And it's, it, as you say, it's a very untamed nature, it's a nature of cataracts and winds and forests. And, and that scene comes in Goethe's Faust, but, but it's much more tragic, the way Berlioz writes it. It comes later, comes when he's near the end, Faust. And, and actually, if you compare Goethe's Faust and Berlioz's Faust, uh, Berlioz's Faust is much further on the road to ruin. You know, he, he's, he's lost, I think, even from the very first number. David, do you think when Aoife talks about this attitude towards a kind of popular folkish culture to the idea of nature as this kind of empty space in which we insert ourselves for these kind of personal communions, is this something that Berlioz has found within Germany, within his journeys into German culture? That's difficult to say because I don't know what, what the evidence would be, but I think certainly because he loved Germany, because unlike France, there was a real public, maybe not a huge public, but there were a lot of people who were really interested in new music, you know, and who, who, who weren't just enslaved to Italian operas, they were in Paris. That, and he found there, particularly in Weimar, where, where Liszt settled, he, he found people who were eager you know, to welcome him. And to, um, in Weimar, Liszt and his friends, they set up this club called the New Weimarians, and they were all Germans practically, except Berlioz. He was the one foreign visitor, the foreign member, and each time he went to Weimar, Liszt put on what he called Berlioz Weeks, you know, 
he, he didn't find that anywhere else, you see. So I think he, he loved Germany for that reason. And also, he also loved uh, Weber's Freischutz, where you get this uh, sort of post-30 years war, this terrible darkness of the forest. And indeed, of course, he set the recitatives yes. from Freischutz in the French version to, to, to music. Yes. David, say a little bit about the very particular sound world that he creates for The Damnation of Faust. That's one of the things about Berlioz, that, it, that it, one, one work, when you get to know it, doesn't prepare you for the, for the next one, because each work has its own poetic world and therefore has to have this particular sound. Um, it's one of his most brilliant scores, wouldn't you say? Maybe, yes. Maybe only Benvenuto Cellini is more sort of sparkling. But what would you signal out as the particular character of it musically? Is it the use of the woodwind? Is it the brass? Um, is it a kind of a, a different balance within the orchestra? Yes, he's certainly. Given his I, I think the fact that he never learned to play the piano, but only the guitar and, and the flute, that unlike so many 19th century composers whose orchestral music is kind of piano-based, there's no sustaining pedal in Berlioz's orchestral textures, whereas there is, I think, in, even with on period instruments, Schumann and Wagner and Brahms, you definitely feel the piano is behind it. But Berlioz never learnt the piano, and um, so he, he thought directly in orchestral terms, and in a funny sort of way, his music is slightly 18th century, I think. It's got this 18th century clarity on top of this. He puts this because that's one of the things that Beethoven taught him was that the orchestra was this completely unimagined you know, vehicle uh, where you could do anything with it. Berlioz makes the one for a mark, music does what it pleases without permission. <laughs> and uh, so he writes for the orchestra not as if it's um, a kind of extension of the pianos. That's why you have this, this very linear quality in his writing and this extraordinary clarity, which, which is almost Mozartian in a way, which means that if it's not played well, it sounds like Mozart awful. You, <laughs> you, you can't get away with anything. Cause he, and also he writes... Uh, he, he wrote a treatise on orchestration and he studied the instruments. And he gives each instrument, well, I'm not one myself, but I think the, an, if there was an orchestral player here, they would agree that he really gives each instrument wonderful things to do. Well, there's the Cor Anglais solo before yes. Marguerite's are that, that is just, you know... Yes, because not many people had written for the Cor Anglais no. before. And when, when he was in Germany taking his orchestral scores, they're like the Fantastic Symphony, he, he was terribly frustrated because he would arrive in a town and find that nobody played the Cor Anglais. <laughs> and so he'd have to arrange it for oboe. And then, then the oboe player, being an old stager, would start putting in decorations during the performance, which he couldn't do anything about. This is, of course, ladies and gentlemen, called Join the Conversation, and this is an opportunity if any of you would like to raise issues or ask questions of our, of our guests. So please put your hand up and ask a question and join the conversation. Because I went to the dress rehearsal and uh, came away absolutely thinking it was fantastic. Um, and it's great that for the first time in a long time when I've been coming to dress rehearsals where we are used to seeing uh, people with blue rinses and grey hair and white hair and no hair. There were a lot of young people there. And I think if E&O has done nothing um, through this opera, it's reached out to a lot more young people than uh, many a previous one. But the point I want to make, which is may not be answerable in the context of our, our panel, distinguished as they are, it's that as I listen to it, 
I mean, huge orchestra, huge um, chorus, uh, great soloists, um, expensive setting, stage setting, a lot of choreography. I thought this is a very expensive production, and uh, how do they manage to pay for this production mm -hmm. when, for instance, the recent production of Parsifal, they actually asked us to put our hands in our pockets for extra finance. I fear your question is beyond the competence of any of us here. Um, you know, um, uh, we can't answer. You must take it up, I suspect, with the management. But, but you're right to remind us that this is a production of immense scale uh, uh, that you're going to see this evening. Do we have another question? Yes. Um, having a well-known film director direct this opera, how was the um, process different to, say, having a, a classical, well-established opera director Could you repeat the question? The question was, I'm not sure again any of us can answer that question, but maybe you can. Well, if, I, let me just repeat it. Was, the question was, what was, it, what was the difference in having a film director as opposed to a stage director working with, with you? Well, um, as David said, the, there are landscapes that are painted, and I think his vision is such that, uh, and, and huge um, um, ballets, and there are, there are fairies, and uh, there, are, there are spirits, and um, I think for a film director, that kind of imagery is uh, just um, transcends into, um, into creating this fantastic stage work. Sadly, I wasn't there from the beginning of the rehearsal process. We, um, as understudies, we're brought in pretty much as the piece is, um, is almost finished and, and when it came to the stage. In the rehearsal process, they, they had very limited um, use of, of the set, for example, so they had to create everything quite fast and um, with Terry's vision, it lent itself to, to working very quickly with a large group of people. He created shapes, he created uh, these fantastic images. So how, how does that work with a different director? I'm not too sure, but... Uh, Aoife, you, you and I are just, do you have a... a, a uh, well, obviously not any kind of insight into the production, but I, I would say going back to that notion that Wagner produces in the mid-19th century of the total artwork, no director will have enough expertise to direct an opera. Any director will come from a particular art form and bring with them uh, that expertise. But of course, opera is famously, at least according to Wagner, the combination of every other art. So it is only right that film directors now should be directing operas because they're bringing that artwork with them in, into the theatre. I haven't seen it yet, but it would be wonderful if it does work, because, I mean, the history of staging of the damnation is littered with things that don't work. And I remember Michael Jelliot at, at this theatre did a very interesting... But when it came to the, the ride to the abyss, where Faust and Mephistopheles mount these black horses, and it's really driven, you know, ghoulish fantastic music. He had these lovely horses of the Camargue, you know, these gentle white horses on the screen <laughs> sort of flowing, and it couldn't have been less what the music was I think, saying. I think we can promise you, David, you'll be holding on to your seat tonight. <laughs> <laughs> think, think of wolves chasing sleighs. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we've reached, I'm afraid, the end of our time. Can I, on your behalf, say thank you to all of you for being here this evening, and can I say thank you to our guests today, above all, David Cairns and Aoife Monks, who joined us at the end. Thank you very much indeed, everybody. Thank you.